my investor reached out to me and essentially when I started seeing venture capitalists go to my inbox, then I said, okay, now there's, there's really something here. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West. As many of you know, we have revamped our podcast, and we are also expanding the topic to include other businesses that are thriving and growing and innovating in the western part of the United States. I'm here with Matt Williams, uh, who is my co-host, and my name is Nicholas Cook. Today, our guest is Anthony Garbarino. He is an upcoming entrepreneur who is making big waves in the EV battery space. Um, he's basically introducing a marketplace so that these batteries can be reused in a multitude of ways. And he's going to be talking about that journey, uh, raising funds to pursue this endeavor, and talking about all the potential for EV batteries. So we're really excited to have Anthony here today and are going to just jump straight into the questions. All right. Hey, hey, Anthony, we're really excited to speak with you. Um, this is a really, really cool uh, business you have going on, and I know a lot of people will be really interested in hearing about it. But before we get into the story of Currents, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background first, just so people have some context of uh, a little bit of your origin story and so forth. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, so thank you guys for having me. Um, how far back to begin is the question. I think the most relevant recent professional experience would be coming from the solid waste and recycling industry. So I've had a family business, a garbage hauler located in Washington County for since 1975, I believe. I came on board as a driver, I want to say a little over four years ago. I was working in that space, was understanding the family business starting from there. Became the owner of the business uh, about two years ago when my dad passed away. My sister and I became owners. And then that led to, you know, a lot more big picture thinking in my day to day, thinking, hey, where's the future of the solid waste and recycling industry going to go? And the first idea that actually came to was around EV batteries. And I'm an extremely obsessive person. So I just began to research like a maniac and fast forward to today, found some pain points in the industry and decided to take a swing. And that's uh, a really abridged version as to how I kind of got into the space I am today, but primarily coming from the you know, garbage and recycling traditional industry. Yeah. Yeah. No, And that makes sense. I mean, I guess obviously, you know, in the type of work you're doing, you know, recycling is a major factor, but this is a pretty big leap from, you know, probably what everyone else, you know, would ever consider. Um, so, I mean, maybe you can tell us like, where did this idea come from? Like, I remember you explaining it to me. It probably took me months to realize what you were really talking about. Most of the story is me just trying to further understand really the end of life EV battery supply chain. So when I first kind of found out about the industry, I, I'm, immediately I went to, I'm gonna open a recycling facility and then I'm gonna sell the lithium and critical minerals back to battery manufacturers. What a genius idea. And then after doing some research, I found that there's you know, already publicly traded companies who are scaling up to do this. I mean, we're talking huge CapEx, even build a facility. So kind of went from, okay, well that that's out of the picture. What else is going on in this industry? And then found out about Second Life Energy Storage Integrators who are acquiring healthy batteries and installing them into stationary energy storage systems to provide you know buildings with backup power or to connect to solar to provide energy independence. And I just thought it was a really cool solution to a potentially huge problem. So I just started reaching out to as many of these people who would talk to me. And it's this really early industry. Everyone's really excited to share. Um, but one of my questions for everyone was, how do you physically acquire the batteries? And I had one company verbatim tell me it's literally the wild, wild west right now in acquiring batteries. And I just thought, hmm, 
that's interesting. So uh, I I share or I worked really closely together with a friend of mine. We kind of bounce ideas off of each other a lot. And when we were talking through kind of the pain points of this industry, he just said, you just illuminated the need for a marketplace in a really early industry. So I owe a lot of credit to my buddy for, you know, kind of pushing me in that direction. But, um, you know, this was also back when it was really early. This is early 2021. You know, these businesses are mostly grant funded at this point by the DOE or California, uh, California Energy Commission. So it was quite a big leap. You're, you're definitely right. But I figured, hey, you know, I can I can afford to take a loss. I don't have a family that's depending on me to, you know, provide my income. I can I can take a big swing. And I, uh, I like taking big swings, so I just decided to screw it. I'm, I'm jumping all in. And that was, uh, um, yeah, mid-2021. So it's, uh, you, you couldn't be more right. It was quite the big leap. But there is, you know, some, some overlap in the, uh, in the recycling space. Hey, uh, Anthony, good to have you. I'm really, I'm really excited about the topic. I just want to bring us to a 30,000-foot level for those who are kind of trying to understand when you say industry, when you say a provider within the industry, the general concept, you know, uh, are you talking about end of life or towards end of life batteries being reused, repurposed, moved around, and you're brokering some of this? What is the, what is the overall industry for those who aren't in it on a daily and they just come and go uh, for work? They're not really understanding the space, the environmental impact, and maybe some of the um, logistical loopholes or grants and systems that you're talking about give us that thirty thousand foot level and and then the role you played within that within that spectrum definitely so yeah this is where i see most of the opportunity and that's we're talking about end of life ev batteries once they reach the end of their useful life in a vehicle so an ev battery typically lasts about seven to ten years in a vehicle depending on how aggressively it's used depending on the climate that it's used in a lot of different factors contribute to the degradation rate of batteries. But once it reaches the end of its useful life in a vehicle, meaning it doesn't have you know practical range left for the owner of that vehicle, it still has traditionally 70 to 80% capacity remaining in that battery. Meaning that sometimes it can be, there's essentially four end of life destinations for a battery once it reaches the end of that first life in a vehicle. One, if it's healthy enough to go right into another vehicle, that's just reuse. Most times those are coming from cars that might be crashed, but still have, you know, a healthy battery that's not damaged. So that's always, you know, item number one, let's put it right into another vehicle. OEMs are currently remanufacturing batteries, which is option number two. So, you know, you have a battery that might be around 70% capacity, but within the battery itself, you have cells that are about the size of a large D battery that make up a module. And then modules about the size of a textbook. And then you have about 40 to 50 modules that make up one entire battery pack that goes into the into the bottom of a vehicle. So when you're talking about remanufacturing, you're talking about swapping out a few faulty modules. So then that OEM can use that battery as a warranty swap in another vehicle. So those are first two options. The third is really what we're targeting with our, our phase one marketplace, as we're calling it. And that's for uh, energy storage customers who want to install these batteries directly into energy storage systems. So we call that repurposing. It's kind of confusing because there's a lot of reuse and repurposing thrown around. When we say reuse, we pretty much mean going into another vehicle and repurposing means going into an energy storage system. And then ultimately, when every battery is at true end of life, meaning it could have lived one valuable life in a car, could have been remanufactured and lived another life in a car, then ultimately could have been sold to a second life energy storage integrator to be uh, you know, using an energy storage for 10 to 15 years. Ultimately, that battery will need to be recycled. And there's, I'd say, four large companies in North America who are recycling today. Uh, but 
essentially that's the last step of the journey for every battery. And then most of these companies are using chemical methods where you basically soak the entire battery. It gives you what's called a black mass. And then in that black mass, you can separate out the lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and then sell that back to a battery manufacturer to uh, build new batteries. So that's essentially at a really high level what OEMs are talking about when they're referencing a closed loop system when it comes to EV batteries. So where we like to come in is our phase one is building a marketplace for OEMs to sell these batteries directly to Second Life integrators. Today, those sales are taking place, but it's through a really manual, archaic process over email, over phone, and it's just really not a scalable approach. So um, for more of our phase two, though, we really see us as touching on every end of life aspect of the battery. So whether that's recyclers who are looking for homogenous chemistries of batteries as they begin to show up at auto recyclers facilities, scrap yards, mechanic shops, really being a large supply chain tool and facilitating end of life batteries to the appropriate party that they need to get to. Cool. So I, I appreciate the explanation. So just for the audience, essentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, brand new batteries go into cars. They're utilized for X number of years. Lifespan is still left in lieu of putting them into that black mass and trying to uh, liquidate each individual piece. You take and try to double or triple the lifespan, but in a different use, maybe putting it at home. Your solar panels can charge those batteries for storage during the day. They can utilize that power at night, which may give another seven years to the already seven years that those batteries had before you have to then melt it down, put it into black mass and repurpose, correct? Exactly. So as OEMs like to call it, maximizing life cycle value, because today, most of the batteries they're getting back, they're getting back directly through warranty returns at their dealership network. So this is a battery that's going back to them that's already a net zero asset. So now OEMs are sitting on a large amount of batteries saying, well, how can we drive more value for this battery? Because if we talk recycling, it depends on the chemistry of what the battery is. So lithium ion is an umbrella. And within lithium ion, you have Lithium iron phosphate, which is cost negative. So you, uh, you'll have to pay a recycler to recycle that, but there's also NMC, nickel, manganese, cobalt, where cobalt's a really high value element that, hey, a recycler will pay you to recycle. So most batteries are moving towards LFP. So a cost negative recycling costs. So OEMs are saying, how can we drive the most, uh, you know, life cycle value out of these batteries? And again, they can sell them to a second life integrator. And then, yes, they can get another 10 plus years of useful life. And, and most of the companies that we're working with, when we're talking energy storage, there's really three categories of energy storage. There's residential, so think Tesla Powerwall. Then there's commercial and industrial, which is what most of the companies that we work with are targeting. So that's, you know, a 43 foot shipping container full of 50 batteries that can provide four hours of backup power to a manufacturing facility. So that's really the, one of the primary use cases. There's also peak shaving services they offer in some uh, electricity markets where your batteries will charge from the grid in the morning when energy is inexpensive. And then around the afternoon, evening time, when energy prices start to peak, your batteries will automatically turn on and you'll begin drawing energy from your batteries instead of from the grid. So it's essentially an upfront investment to save energy costs over time. And then the last bucket of energy storage is grid scale. And this is just think, you know, a, a farm full of shipping containers that's just storing energy to provide, you know, grid services to an entire city. So Second Life has really found its niche in that commercial and industrial sector. And one of the main um, uh, value propositions for these buyers, of these energy storage systems is, hey, it's an upfront investment. It saves you on your energy bill over time. And the value proposition for using Second Life batteries versus new is that they can offer you you know, about a 50% off the uh, sticker price of a new battery system and to have relatively similar performance and check your boxes on sustainability. It just, 
it seems like a win. And I might get carried away a little bit here, but the Inflation Reduction Act is going to be an enormous catalyst for this industry because there's a investment tax credit for standalone storage systems that gives uh, you know building owners a 30%, 30% tax rebate if they install a system. So we believe that's going to be the catalyst in demand that this industry really needs. So that's why we're racing to get to market to be able to you know fulfill that demand and work with our OEM partners to to get these batteries responsibly to where they need to be. It's pretty wild. I mean, it, obviously, it's pretty clear with the where the value creation is. I mean, whether it's on the consumer side or on the commercial side. I mean, the thing that just shocks me is that you know electric vehicles have been around for a while now, right? We've had these batteries for a while. Why hasn't anybody solved this marketplace problem yet? Like, why? How? How did you? stumble upon this kind of unbuilt industry? It's a great question. And it's going to touch on a lot of the sleepness, sleepless nights I had over the past year. But I asked that same question when I was getting started myself. I was like, if this was a real thing, someone would be doing this. And I just kept going and charging <laughs> forward. And just in the last year alone, like we've started to see other competitors pop up. We've started to see, you know, a real market need for it. But as I mentioned, these sales are already taking place kind of at a smaller scale today. You know, there's a group of innovators. If we look at the bell curve of diffusion of innovation, you know, it starts with the 2% of the market as those first innovators. That's where we're at today. We're with, you know, these really, you know, people who are grant funded, who are just trying to prove commercial viability. Like we're starting to move a little bit towards the early adopters as we see additional outside capital come in and support this industry. But it's just so early and so new that there hasn't really been a market need. Like there was a, a large company in the space that actually was planning on doing exactly what I'm doing around four years ago. And they just scrapped it because they said, we're simply, we're simply too early. So that left the door open for some time. And I like to say, I credit a lot of the success I've had to the hard work, but I'd be lying if I said a lot of this wasn't just blind luck. I mean, I've gone out there, I've put myself in front of people but the timing has just been fortuitous that the one thing I am concerned about is that we're even still too early, but, but time will tell. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is something obviously conceptually is really, you know, fascinating, but you know, all businesses, especially early businesses, you know, always have to kind of establish proof of concept. Have you, have you done any of that work? So we are pre-revenue. We have developed a, uh, an essentially an approved buyer experience. Um, but what I can't announce today, which uh, we should be announcing in the coming months, is our go-to-market supplier. And we feel that we have the best supplier in the industry who has agreed to exclusivity through our marketplace. So Currents will be the only channel to acquire these really desired batteries in the energy storage industry. So uh, it, it's almost like we're, we're leapfrogging a few steps. And essentially, the way that we're seeing it is that the agreement with this supplier is our proof of product market fit. Um, but that also kind of leads to our go-to-market strategy and a few other tactics that we have over the, the uh, coming six months to the next year. But uh, yeah, if, if you want to call going around and, and asking buyers, hey, would you use this marketplace that really solves these four core problems that we've identified for you? They all said a resounding yes. So uh, we'll see, though. There, we're we're pre-revenue, and, and we, we honestly have a long ways to go. Anthony, you know there are a lot of factors, a lot of impacted people. And sometimes it's kind of tough. I, I know I take it down to, uh, basics and 30,000 feet quite a bit, but just because, uh, I'm somewhat of a knucklehead and I know that, uh, if I'm not directly involved in a specific space, it takes me a minute to kind of catch up. So, um, there have been a lot of pressures and, um, controversy one might say around this complete 
push or shift to electric or uh, solar wind generated power. The, one of the big arguments uh, politically or socially, environmentally is, well, we have nowhere to store the power that's readily available. And that, that's probably the biggest one that I hear. Does this solve that problem? So that is what energy storage is aiming to solve in general. And I do see energy storage as the next sector of the energy industry to, to really explode, for lack of a better word. And what it does is exactly you touched on it. It unlocks the real potential of renewables because what you're touching on there is called curtailment. So for solar that's not connected to energy storage, any energy that they generate that's not, you know, there's no demand for it is just wasted. So that's what grid scale storage is attempting to solve. But hey, if we can store all this energy, the one that'll balance out and make our grid more resilient, it'll make us more energy independent. You know, then what we're talking about here with energy storage in general is this is way long term, but it's kind of the concept of the microgrid, where if we have a smart grid with everyone having energy storage, whether that's, you know, residentially, where you can begin to sell back to the grid, where businesses, you know, commercial industrial customers have these larger megawatt hour systems, where then we can all be, you know, buying and selling energy at will and essentially really balancing out our grid. So it's not, you know, one generation source because one of the, uh, the main contributors to greenhouse gases today is our, our peaker power plants. They're run off, you know, generally coal power plants or fossil fuel, fossil fuel related. And that's when, hey, there's an excess demand that we have supply. We've got to fire up this peaker plant to fulfill that gap in, uh, in supply. So energy storage is attempting to phase out those more traditional senses of, uh, of generation. But it's, it's also a really interesting time because if we're just talking about energy generation in general, like we're going through this paradigm shift where everyone wants to move to clean energy, but we're not really building additional, you know, we're not improving on what we have from, you know, a generation perspective. So we're taking an old power plant offline and replacing it with perhaps the same capacity or slightly more. So it's almost the first time in history that we're not necessarily becoming, you know, we're making additional supply It's we're phasing everything out. So there's, it's a really interesting time. So pairing energy storage with that really begins to unlock the true value of those generation sources. Well, and, and I think to your point, um, you know, the, the interesting aspect is as we phase these things out, it's in the, in the real estate world, it's kind of like, you know, you don't give your 30 day notice until you have a new place to, to live. Right. And under the current administration, one of the big arguments uh, for people that are proponents of this is sure. Cool. We can go uh, renewables. But if you shut everything else down in the interim, we don't have something to replace it. We don't have the infrastructure. You don't have enough power being generated and the cap the ability to store it so that everyone can both charge their car and run their AC. So it sounds like you, we're kind of moving into that space that uh, may be a catalyst for that. Would you agree? I couldn't agree more. And that's why we're starting to see a ton of investment poured into bolstering our domestic supply chains. I mean, because if we look at it right now, I think it's something like 75 to 80% of our lithium comes directly from China. So we have a giant national security threat, just simply because we don't have any domestic supply chains, we don't have any manufacturing here. But you've seen through the Biden administration, enormous amounts of outside investment come in to fund the recycling industry, to begin to be able to say, all right, well, now we can take what we already have here domestically, recycle it and sell it back to battery manufacturers. And you're starting to see this huge paradigm shift in the OEM landscape. And when I say OEM, I'm talking like automotive OEMs. So Nissan, Toyota, Ford, they've traditionally had this extremely fragmented supplier base model. And an interesting fact to find out about the automotive OEM industry is they're one of the world's largest consumers of plastics. 
simply because they rely on so many exterior suppliers to produce one vehicle. So, you know, the seat that they put into their vehicle comes from a different supplier than the seatbelt does, for example. But now we're starting to see OEMs partnering with these battery manufacturers and building these gigafactories. And that's where we see a lot of opportunities with currents and battery recovery. Because like, as I mentioned at the top of the call, today, the only access to batteries that these OEMs have are through their warranty returns. Most batteries are going to start showing up at auto recycling facilities, at mechanic shops, at scrap yards, and these OEMs have no access to those batteries. So that's where we see our channel providing value, where auto, auto recyclers, scrap yards can sell batteries directly back to OEMs. So OEMs can really control and own their supply chain. So because if the last few years have showed us anything, now all of a sudden supply chain is, is front page news. And especially when we're talking about something like finite critical minerals, where this is a, another huge point. Where, hey, if we want to set up a new lithium mine, it's one, a gigantic CapEx investment. And to go through the regulatory and permitting processes, it can take up to 10 years from the day that you find a site to the day that you actually start pulling lithium out of the ground. So OEMs are seeing how valuable owning their you know end of life supply chains are and being able to facilitate that where we want to go. And then not even to mention like the U.S. Department of Trade's interest in keeping all of the elements that we have here domestically. Because... Uh, that's why they're scaling all these recyclers up and you know there's billions of dollars in investment going into these recyclers because they don't want to ship any of these batteries anywhere internationally they want to keep everything here so we have energy independence and don't have to rely on exterior sources yeah well i mean i think that with the uh you know russian ukraine conflict yep i think it's really exposed energy vulnerability especially in europe and especially in germany um i mean there that's a really great case for you know making a lot of decisions swiftly um with good intentions but that were betting on you know a stable environment to do that in and so obviously finding new ways to store power and uh, to keep things domestically probably you know is, is a major national security uh risk um and certainly something that's that's important and one of the things that you know you touched on uh about lithium mines and things like that was just the regulatory red tape but that kind of brings up the issue of like recycling these batteries. I mean, you, you mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, interview here that it's the wild west. What are the regulations like for a marketplace like this for selling these batteries? You know, what, what's that look like now? So it's extremely immature. There is California is kind of the thought leader when it comes to legislation and they organize what was called, it's a mouthful of a name. It's like the the lithium car battery advisory something 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 group and essentially they made a recommendation to the california legislature on what you know an end of life uh whether that's extended producer responsibility essentially an end of life management guideline that we're hoping gets adopted at a federal level but the reality is is that we are really far behind so if we look at the eu as a, a case study they have really strict ex or strict extended producer responsibility that falls onto the vehicle OEMs themselves. So let's say I'm a vehicle OEM. I sell you guys a battery that you install into an energy storage system. Well, 10 to 15 years later, when that battery needs to be recycled, I, as that vehicle OEM, am still responsible to ensure that it gets recycled responsibly. And I need documentation to prove it. You know, you need to have a paper trail. We are nowhere near there in the U.S., you know, that California advisory group made their recommendation to the legislator in March. So to be honest, I'm not exactly sure where they are on that process, but yes, good point because a lot of this uh, regulation is going to have implications on who that end of life recycling cost falls onto. So is it the OEM who's paying for that battery to be recycled? Is it the second life integrator who bought that battery and now legally owns it from the second life integrator? 
those are the two models that they've proposed and said, hey, we're, we're all in favor of, of EPR. We're also mostly in favor of, you know, the burden of responsibility falling onto the end buyer. So it's a really early regulatory environment. And I think a lot of OEMs are just kind of sitting around looking at each other going, what are people doing? What are, what are best practices here? But it's an interesting space. And then if we kind of take that a level further, like you have some OEMs who are of the school of thought that, hey, these are such valuable critical minerals and we need to electrify things like transportation before we put our focus to energy storage. And unfortunately, the largest, uh, uh, the, the largest OEM in this school of thought is Tesla. So the ex-CTO of Tesla actually started Redwood Materials, which is a recycling facility in Nevada. So Tesla has come out and said, every battery that we get back within our network is going directly to Redwood and being recycled so we can continue to build new batteries for electrification. Then the other school of thought says, well, for every battery that reaches the end of its life in a vehicle, it still has 10 to 15 years of a useful life. It can provide a lot of value in energy storage. So there's the, these are finite minerals. And then there's the, well, this decreases the need for minerals to be mined for a new battery in the first place. And we're still... OEMs are still kind of landing on, on either side right now, but there are a few who really support Second Life. And then, you know, some who fall more in the, we're simply recycling all of these categories. So really, really early market dynamics right now. You know, along with uh, regulation comes cost. It drives the cost up and we live in, we have a government here that is not known to be proficient or efficient. And the bureaucracy can, can sometimes weigh your ability to achieve your goal. Um, and and really pull that down. How do we, or how do you see this being something that is taken to the consumer, directly to the consumer as a benefit? That's not to say, you know, every product has to be sold to the consumer, but to have buy-in for the individuals that are um, utilizing this for a whole house system, let's say, if I want a backup generator system at my house, maybe that's something that I as a consumer want to say, I'm not getting a diesel-powered backup generator that ties into the electric. I'm going to buy one of these OEM produced battery stations, let's call them, and then hook up solar so that in the future um, I have a storage, you know, some type of storage capacity. Is that where you see that going to the consumer or is there a, a pathway for that end user? That's a good question. And it would pretty much be speculation on mine right now because I don't have direct insights into OEMs and exactly where they're passing that cost along through. I think it would make the most sense to include, you know, potential future second life sales or potential cost negative recycling sales in the sale price or lease price of a vehicle and transparently show consumers, you know, because not like energy or second life batteries is no one even knows what you're talking about still. So this is going to be, I think, a large sales tactic to really encourage, you know, electrification adoption as it relates to mobility. And I think being transparent with the consumer saying, hey, this battery, it has X, you know, X number of cycles that we can estimate that it can live throughout its life. Then we can drive additional value selling it to be used in energy storage and that, you know, maybe showing them how that drives those costs. But one thing was clear on the, uh, the California recommendation was that those recycling costs wouldn't be passed to the consumer at that point, but that they could be included in the upfront costs. So. I don't know if that really answers your question. And I, I think it's because the industry hasn't really figured it out yet either. Well, I mean, I think 
um, a little bit of what you're talking about is really being done currently, right? I mean, when you go in and you buy a car battery, if you turn your old one in, you get the core value, I think is what they call it. And you get your, um, your you know, 15 bucks back or whatever. Yep. Same with beer cans. You go in and buy a six pack of beer, you pay 10 cents per can. And then if you, if you turn them in, you get those 10 cents back. You're saying that very well could be done with purchasing a vehicle. You spend an extra $2,500 as a surcharge or something. And then when you sell that back or it gets totaled or something, they collect the resources from that and you get a $2,500 refund technically. So that's what we're working through that model with our main OEM partner right now. We're, we're just calling it this large black box of what we call recovery. Cause that's kind of what I touched on. OEMs are all interested in driving that recovery through their own channels, i.e. their dealership networks. Um, but the reality is, is that if you're an auto recycler and you buy a salvage vehicle at an end of life auction, now you own that car and it is your business model to extract maximum value from every component of the vehicle. And this is a well-established supply chain and industry that's been in existence for as long as we've had vehicles. But what's new to all of them is that this whole electrification model really just kind of upends the entire supply chain. The only current outlet that they have is for that reuse category that I mentioned where, hey, this is healthy enough of a battery to go right into a vehicle. And there's a mechanic shop that wants to swap out a Chevy Bolt battery. So, hey, we can sell it directly to them. But now if we're talking about those other three categories where if an OEM has interest in acquiring a relatively healthy battery to remanufacture, how does that auto recycler sell that back to the OEM? If that battery should be sold to a second life integrator, how is that, how is that auto recycler going to find that second life integrator? And then if this needs to be recycled, well, how can we drive down costs for the entire value chain by by optimizing supply chain routes and collecting homogenous chemistries of batteries to be you know delivered to the recycler that'll pay the highest bid for it? There's no current option for that. So that's where we see currents is stepping in and filling those three you know unfilled pain points. And like I said, I, we're really early. So if we you know the first EVs were mass introduced in around 2011, 2012, and if we're adding that seven to ten year lag time. Um, we're really not even starting to see EVs show up at these auto recyclers facilities in mass numbers yet. And some of the largest players in the auto recycling space have simply said, we don't buy any EVs because we don't know what to do with the battery. So, so kind of hearing these things, just this is what kind of gave me the fuel early on in my days when I said, all right, well, people aren't saying there's credibility for a marketplace, but they're saying we have this giant pain point and we have no idea how to solve it. So we feel with our, with our OEM partnerships that we can you know, really drive value for these other three, uh, essentially end of life uh, uh, supply chains. Yeah, and and that kind of brings up some uh, interesting. I mean, this is this is a relatively new, you know, enterprise and you know pursuit of yours. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about just kind of the technological aspect of this marketplace, but you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of your journey and some of like the early challenges you faced and just getting to where you are today? Because I mean, pioneering something is never easy. Uh, so maybe you could just tell, share a few maybe examples of just some of the things that you've overcome. First and foremost uh, was just being uncomfortable and then being used to that. Like I remember going to the first trade show I went to in September of 2021 and being so nervous, basically like not understanding the industry at all. And I was just going to go run around to as many people as I could and tell them about what I was doing. And I was terrified. I imagine if you ask anyone who I talked to on that first day, they probably had no idea what I was trying to do. I was just nervous, mumbling and bumbling, saying, here's a business card. Let's let's talk later. But I think a lot of the success I've had has just been from, from being there. I told myself in 21, any relevant show, any relevant expo, I'm going to go to. There are about half of them that were flops where there was no one there who was you know even interested in talking with me. But 
I think from the other half that I went to, it just started to open up more and more doors. And especially as people started to see the pain points that we're starting to see in the early days, that just kind of gave me the motivation to keep going saying, hey, this big industry said there's a need here. I'm just going to now aggressively chase that with, with everything I can. Um, but the journey has been a lot of ups and downs. And for, I'd say the first nine months, it, it, we kind of touched on this in the beginning. Well, if this is a real good idea, someone would already be doing this. And that's what honestly kept me up the most. And then I just felt like I was lighting my money on fire. Um, but just how fast I've seen things progress in a year and a half and to now seeing, you know, like if we want to pivot to investing or the investment in the round, we just raised a little bit like that. My investor reached out to me and essentially when I started seeing venture capitalists go to my inbox, then I said, okay, now there's, there's really something here. And it went from being, you know, me spending my own money to fund this to now I have investors behind me and they have a portfolio of companies that operate in the lithium space, whether that's battery diagnostics and testing, whether that's battery recycling, battery recovery. So now we're plugged into their network of expertise. And, you know, we have access to the CEOs of these other businesses to help us scale our own. But man, if I had any words to impart to anyone who is trying to go after a new and early and immature industry, uh, I'd say get some melatonin because sleeping was very, very <laughs> difficult for me. Uh, and a lot of people looked at me like I was an idiot. But now, you know, after I we just released the press release with HG Ventures on Friday, and all those recyclers who told me that there's a year ago, there's no use for you. They Some of them were even interested in taking over the round. Now they're saying, we're starting to see collection be a, a gigantic pain point. We're having to do milk runs and do logistics to go recover one battery. We don't want to be handled this. We just want to keep continuous feedstock coming into our systems. So there's really a need. And I actually found a great article about uh, also researching other markets is, is a huge help if you're trying to go into something new. But essentially, I found an article about China where they're much further ahead of us when it comes to electrification due to heavy subsidies from the CCP. Um, they built up a giant end of life recycling infrastructure. But and if we if we look at China, they're probably three to five years ahead of us. But one thing this article called out is that their supply chain for their end of life lithium is just broken and non-existent. So there's, you know, facilities all over the place, but no central facilitator to get batteries to where they need to be. So you had some places that didn't have a large capacity getting an enormous amount of feedstock next to, you know, major markets. And they don't they don't have the capacity, but hey, there's nowhere else to take it. So there's no market facilitator. And I remember reading that early on and maybe late 21 going, OK. If this is happening in a major market at scale, then, then this is going to be happening in North America in the next, I'd say, one to three years. So a lot of it is lying to yourself and going, there is something here, and then believing that lie and just not giving up. I heard a great Tony Finau quote when he won some golf tournament two weeks ago. He said, uh, a winner is just a loser who keeps trying. So just <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Fair enough. I like it. I like it. So... Um... Obviously, it sounds like you've got some funding recently, which is nice. You're not you're not burning your own cash. That brings with it some other probably challenges. But I imagine one of the things that you need to, or you're going to be doing is kind of building out a team. How's that? How's that going? And uh, what are your plans there? Yep. So we're we're doing this uh, product development model where essentially it's outsourced, and we bring on talented hires as you know as the need exposes itself. So we have essentially like a two year product development arc. And the, the first key hire that we're going to have is in the next uh, 
say two to four months as a product manager. And essentially they're going to be entirely responsible for, for our MVP, which we should have in market, um, in 23, which is absolutely insane to say, but, um, but yeah, essentially it's plugging these hires in and handing things off from our design agency. And it's a really expensive approach, but I have very, very high confidence in it since this, uh, this company that we're using has done this model with with major players. They've done this. They've done this with with Splunk. They've done this with Zynga. They've done this exact development model, and you build a team around it when it's necessary. And what that saves for us in the interim is having a lot of resources sitting idle. So this agency is handling a lot of the creative heavy lifting. You know, they're facilitating product discovery, definition. We're utilizing their team of developers. They have an agile model where, hey, we can scale the team up when necessary and, you know, really put our foot on the gas or, hey, we can have a smaller team right now who's just working with key suppliers and buyers to really develop, you know, initial prototypes. And then once we have something that's good, it's heads down, developers down, we're putting our foot on the gas. Um, yeah, essentially at a high level, our hiring model looks like product manager, hopefully on board in four to six months. Uh, two developers who are essentially just keeping the platform live, you know, we might utilize some you know, more uh, inexpensive options for those. And then say in that 12, eight to 12 month time frame, we're going to have two to four in-house developers and then continue scaling up the development team as we need. But uh, it kind of uh, aligns with our fundraising journey a little bit as well. So we raised enough this round to finish the product, give us about 12 to 18 months of runway after launch. And then really what I've been talking about for, you know, incorporating recyclers and auto recyclers, uh, basically, the, the bigger picture is what we're referring to as our phase two, our bigger recovery model. Now, that is a gigantic problem and a, a lot of stakeholders who have huge funding who want to solve it. So we're kind of targeting that as a series A raise that we're pushing out, I'd say, around 18 months from now, and then really looking to scale the team up aggressively and go after that market. And then from there, it's my God, who knows what the team is going to look like, but <laughs> it's hard to forecast what the team looks like when our, when our strategic partners don't even know what they want the program to look like. So the, the common theme here is early industry, lots of pain points, but the goal is have everyone's pain points documented and then go out and do a series A raise where we build a piece of technology that solves everyone's pain points is, is the hope and vision. From an end user or layman perspective, does this look like a Craigslist uh, swap and jump on and barter your own? Is it more like an Amazon where you jump on and you got a bunch of different people that have different levels of um, storage capacity opportunity and different individuals are moving forward? Or is it more of an industry specific, you're directing it with people who are already in the industry, understand the language and delivery or none of those? So, so perfect example, because it's, it's essentially just a rebranded Craigslist, you know, just very basic white purple hyperlink. No, I'm kidding. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I told, no. I told you I was going to dumb it down. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very sexy Craigslist. You guys are going to love it. <laughs> no. Um, no, so uh, for, for, for a minimum viable product, we're going to market with one supplier. So that really makes things easy from a, you know, from a pricing perspective, and essentially we think the largest value add that our platform can provide to buyers is pricing based on battery state of health. So integrators are interested in that typically comes in a percentage. And it's calculated by the capacity used over the capacity new of the battery, typically measured in kilowatt hours. So all of our pricing is going to be determined based on how healthy a battery actually is, which we think is an enormous value add to integrators. And it's fair pricing, it's transparent pricing, and we believe it solves the core problem today that they're facing. So 
Uh, on top of that, it's not going to be a bidding platform for minimum viable product. Um, but quickly after MVP is phase one, where we really, because MVP is going to be essentially a beta release invite only for buyers. Um, the supplier that we're working with, a lot of these buyers already work with today. So they're familiar with the inventory, but essentially that enables just everything else for us. So we get this MVP launch. Now we can begin working with additional suppliers, building out what the approved supplier experience looks like, onboarding other suppliers, whether that be OEMs, whether that be other battery owners. Um, but uh, a lot of business requirements to be figured out between MVP and phase one. And we first, we have to figure out the business requirements of MVP, which is seems simple on paper, but when you get into the nitty gritty of how it actually all functions, it gets extremely complex, even for something that's as simple sounding as, oh yeah, we're just gonna you know, open up a Shopify platform for this company to sell their batteries. So it's my first foray into product development. And like I said, I was a garbage man two years ago. So <laughs> I, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome coming into the technology space. Um, luckily, I have a really good uh, team of advisors around me been reading like a maniac. The the messiah of product development is Marty Kagan. So I've been studying him as much as I can. Um, but just really trying to surround myself with people who know, you know, more than I do around this stuff. And I've been transparent around my recruiting for product managers. That's one of the first things I tell them. I said, I was a garbage man two years ago. And I'm just this crazy guy who had this idea to go into this space. And I want you to have full, you know, freedom and flexibility. I won't be stepping on your toes. The reality is I'll probably be learning from you. So let's, let's go build this team together where everyone has their own, uh, you know, their own area of expertise. And mine is God knows what probably just rambling about myself on zoom to people, but, uh, <laughs> I'll provide value where I can. Yeah. Well, no, that's great. And I mean, it's just a fascinating kind of story and, uh, it's, it's, uh, definitely looking like it's going to create a lot of value for, like I said, both, you know, retail customers, but certainly commercial applications. Um, I know that you've got uh, some more stuff to do today, so figure we might kind of wrap this up. Uh, we usually like to wrap up our podcast interviews with some personal questions. Let's do it. Um, so I think uh, Matt and I will ask you a few and uh, find out, you know, who is Anthony. Ooh, right. let's get let's get juicy. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Um, you know, if you were a professional wrestler. What would be your uh, theme song? <laughs> so real quick, <laughs> funny story about that. So the head of HG Ventures is fund used to be the president of the WWE. And he was like <laughs> on stage with like Vince McMahon and whatnot. He, the guy just has the craziest wow. background story. But uh, if I'd have to pick a song, I would have to say uh, I'm blanking on the name of the band. So that's not a great sign. But Final Countdown, whoever that hair rock band is who played that. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, foreigner? From Arrested Development, Job's intro. Michael. So probably <laughs> something cheesy in the hair rock era. Love it. Oh, my gosh. All right. So uh, another question. When you buy Twitter, whose account would you cancel and whose account would you reinstate? <laughs> Here's the thing. As I mentioned, I have some imposter syndrome from going into the tech industry. I'm not even on Twitter. Um, I had an account <laughs> in college I think I posted on once and it got hacked. And now I'm like banned <laughs> on that account. So. so you'd reinstate yours. Yeah, exactly. We, we'd get Anthony Garbarino back on that because my, my three followers are probably curious where my, where my posting has been. But, but no, I feel like I'm an old man. I get my news from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Oregon Live. And I try and stay away from, from social media as much as I can, but I get sucked back in every now and then. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you kind of hinted at um, early on in the podcast that you're a unmarried, childless, childless man. Um, <laughs> it's <sounds> so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, do you uh, do you want those things out of life, or are you just focused on the business world? Absolutely. Yeah, I would love to have a family. I mean, yeah, a, a big part of my story is you know losing my dad and the resources he left behind kind of enabled me to bootstrap this business and get it off the ground. So. I owe so much credit to him and his life to giving me this opportunity. And I mean, yeah, ultimately it's my my dream to give it back to someone, but I still feel like a little kid every now and then. And now I'm a 30 year old kid. So it, it feels weird. I mean, I'd love to have a family sometime. Who knows where currents will go and who knows how busy my life's going to be in the next few years. But uh, I have a great girlfriend at the moment. She's super supportive. She finally understands that it's not about double A batteries and it's about lithium batteries. So, <laughs> so we're making some, some serious progress. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Uh, past, current, living or not? As tacky as it is, I get really fired up on like motivational type stuff. So it's hard to not say Tony Robbins just because he's so absurd and we'd probably do dinner like on little trampolines or something. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I might say Tony Robbins. All right. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, Anthony, this has uh, been a fun interview and um, that's all, all we have for you. So Matt and I are going to let you get on with your day and uh, we're looking forward to maybe another update in about a year and see how, how things are going with you and Currents. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. I love talking about my favorite topic, which is me. <laughs> so feel free to reach out anytime. Also, I would be remiss to say that I owe a lot of success that I've had to me just reaching out to people and people being insanely helpful for me. So a goal of mine throughout this whole journey is to pay that back in any way that I can. So if any of your listeners are curious about my journey or want to talk or anything, like I'll put my LinkedIn or something on there and encourage people to reach out to me and I'd be happy to meet with anyone, happy to talk with anyone and, and share, you know, anything I can. So it's, it's the least I could do for the help that I've gotten thus far. Anthony, we really appreciate you being here today. How, how do you want people to reach out to you? Is, uh, aside from LinkedIn, is there a website or an email or anything you want to put out there or just you want us to post your LinkedIn info on our podcast? LinkedIn might be best. We have a generic uh, email address for the business. It's info at currents.market, but I check my LinkedIn, I'd say more regularly. I'd say Twitter, but I'm not on there. So <laughs> I never thought I'd be using LinkedIn as much as I do. So that's probably the best way for people to reach out. Cool. Well, best of luck to you. Uh, as Nick said, we'll, we'll keep checking in and we really appreciate your time. It's been a blast, fellas. I look forward to the next conversation. Mm -hmm.